Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatchett, and you are tuned in to the Double-Edged Sword Program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 101.7 KJDM Lindsburg Salina, and our flagship station where it all started, 88.1 KVDM Hayes. And here on the Double-Edged Sword Program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And I think what I want to call um, this installment of Double-Edged Sword, I want to call it when you're at the end of your rope. Um, that is to say, when it looks like everything's just falling apart and it looks like there's no light at the end of the t- tunnel, there's no hope, you know, what do we do? And the reason why, why I think this is worth asking, um, number one, because the answer is very consoling, but another reason would be, you know, back, you, you stop and think about back in the days before the Christian movement, you know, before... Jesus came and gave us hope, you know, before Jesus, you know, assumed the most hopeless position in the world, Good Friday afternoon, nailed to a cross, abandoned by his friends, and everything that looked like that he had worked so hard to build up had just kind of disappeared in a puff of smoke and betrayal. And yet he shows us God himself in the person of his son, who is God, shows us firsthand that when everything appears to be darkest, you know, there is always some hope. And that's always been a great consolation for Christians. And what, I'm, what I kind of think about is you go back to the days before Christianity or go to the Christian world outside of the, of the influence of the Christian world, and you look at how people deal with the same thing. You know, people, to even to our very day, you know, you know, well, you know, life is hard and then you die. There's nothing sure but death and taxes, you know, and kind of this fatalistic view of, of what human life is all about. And taken just at its, at its face value, well, then it's no wonder, you know, again, back in the days of the Roman Empire, you know, why suicide was sort of seen as sort of an honorable thing. Or, you know, back in the days of the Roman Empire, you know, the, um, and this wasn't just in Rome, I mean, this was in the Greek world and every place else. You know, just, you know, debauchery, any kind of sensual pleasure was seen as a good thing because it numbed the pain of the fact that really nobody had any answers to the question, why should I endure pain? Why should I endure disappointment? If I fail at something, you know, why should I get up and try again? And other than the fact that the human spirit, which has been designed by God, you know, kind of gives us sort of a a natural reason to kind of pick up and go, um, we find in Christianity there's sort of a supernatural reason, and which, again, like I said, is ultimately Jesus on the cross. But what I want to look at today is to see how we kind of go through some of the scriptures and see how people in the past have dealt with disillusionment, disappointment, with failure, you know, and things like that, and, and, and how they were able to, you know, how they were able to pick up and keep going. Because, again, any one of us, if there's any individual listener out there or any one of us, you know, as a whole that are thinking, you know, gosh, it just sort of seems like things are pretty hopeless right now. Um, how are we ever going to, you know, get past whatever it is we have to get past? You know, maybe, you know, someone's facing, you know, some kind of a, a problem with addiction or they themselves are addicted to whatever it is. There's tons of things to be addicted to these days, to alcohol, drugs, sexual pleasure, spending money, um, you know, addicted to Facebook, you know, whatever the case might be. You know, people look at these things, you know, if we're addicted to social media or or anything and, and we go, well, is there any hope? 
or when I look, maybe the, maybe I'm not the one that's addicted, but maybe it's someone that I'm depending on. You know, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's you know somebody in my family that's adopted some kind of a disordered lifestyle and that they're destroying themselves and maybe you know taking as many other people around them as they can with them. And we go, you know, where's where's the reason to go on? Why should we why should we continue you know struggling with this difficulty? And what I want to do is, um, for one thing, just to show, uh, for the first part of the program here, is to show that we're not the first people to deal with this stuff. You know, that if we go back in the Old Testament and we look at the prophets and we see them, you know, we're going to see that, you know, they went through very, these various crises of faith as well. And, you know, crisis of faith, I think, is kind of what it's all about. Because, like I said, if someone does not have faith, um, I would be very interested to find out why, you know, if, if you really stop and think about it, I think even if you ask a so-called atheist, this is the funny thing about atheism, you know, G.K. Chesterton says, if there were no God, there would be no atheists. Let that one sink in for a little bit. If there were no God, there would be no atheists. Yet there are atheists, therefore there must be a God. <laughs> Get it? Um, or, you know, as, as um, Dostoevsky says in the Brothers Karamazov, that if there is no God, then everything is permitted. But even the atheist admits that everything is not permitted. Therefore, since everything is not permitted, there must be a God. But the thing is, as I think even if you went up to an atheist whose world was falling apart, if you went up to an atheist and said, well, you know, um, your spouse just abandoned you. You just found out that you've got stage four cancer and um, yet your child still needs you or, you know, the, you know, what reason can you give me for behaving in a noble and honorable manner? You know, they might try to come up with some kind of a, of a secular um, argument of saying, well, it's just the right thing to do. Yeah, it really says who? You know, and, and so um, I think that even the so-called atheists of our time, there's enough just even just theism, that is to say belief in God, there's enough God around that it's invaded their DNA somehow that even they can't completely escape it. But nonetheless, you know, when we look at, um, at, at how, you know, great people in the past, the great prophets like Elijah or Jeremiah or, you know, or, um, you know, even uh, Moses and even in, in the Christian era, people like Teresa of Avila, and you look at how people have, have confronted difficulties and disillusionments and disappointments and failures and obstacles and so on. You know, we can see that um, as, as a result of their, of their faith and their belief in God, they're able to not only get through these things, but actually come out of them on the other side as better people. And again, our paradigm for all of this is Jesus Christ himself, you know, being unjustly condemned and betrayed. Um, being abandoned by his friends, being hung up on a cross to die, dying, but then coming out on the other side, resurrected on Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday morning. You know, that's our paradigm. That, that's our, our example that we're going to go back to that we base everything else off of. And so, um, first of all, then, I think what we want to do is um, when we ask ourselves the question, you know, kind of pick apart the anatomy. You know, what is it that puts us at odds you know, with other family members and so on, or other, you know, our friends or people at work and things like that. And one of the, one of the things I remember some, one time somebody saying was um, that there was, there was a man and um, his wife and the mother of his children, you know, the, the mother of the family had, you know, developed a terrible drinking problem. And, um, and it, was, it was just tearing the family apart. 
And I think, you know, you have Alcoholics Anonymous and you also have the, you know, the support groups that kind of go along with that. And there, there was a, the, the man was going to, the, to this other, you know, support group of, you know, people that were, you know, spouses or that had loved ones who were alcoholics. And they, they, they kind of reminded them, they said, you have to remember, your wife does not have a problem with drinking. She's perfectly fine with it. You're the one that has the problem with her drinking you know, which is kind of a, a, an interesting way to understand it. And so, again, when we look around and we see the various disordered things that the world is embracing, you know, that the world embraces, you know, physician-assisted suicide, the world embraces abortion, the world embraces, you know, same-sex so-called marriage, um, the world embraces all these things, you know, that are, you know, detrimental to our culture and to our civilization. And, you know, people of faith stand by saying, what in the heck is going on? Well, again, you have to remember, you know, the world doesn't have a problem with physician-assisted suicide. You know, we do. We have the problem with it. The world doesn't have a problem with abortion. The world's perfectly fine with it. It's people of faith, you know, that have a, that have a problem with it. And why do we have that problem with it? Well, um, St. James tells us in, in chapter 4, verse 4, this is kind of the beginning of what I want to talk about. James says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And, you know, there you have it right there. You know, because we have chosen to be friends with God, I mean, whatever, you know, the, what St. James says here, it's true. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. The converse must also be true. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of God becomes an enemy with the world, all right? And that's what's happened, is, you know, anyone who tries to be a friend of God is going to find themselves an, an, as an enemy of the world. And so anyone who, who tries to become a friend of God is going to find all sorts of, you know, good reasons and motivations for leading a, a good and noble life, you know, none, none, not the least of which is that God has mapped it out for us, you know, very basically in the Ten Commandments, but even in more detail and in more loving detail in the teachings of Jesus and the gospel. And so, you know, if we find ourselves wanting to be friends with God, we are going to be enemies with the world. And we're going to find ourselves then being on the receiving end of violence by those who believe in abortion and those who want to, you know, put teenage girls and, and, and boys, you know, as soon as they become physically capable of reproduction, even though they're not emotionally ready by any stretch of the imagination, well, we'll just solve that by an unholy alliance of Planned Parenthood and public education, and Planned Parenthood will come into the public schools and pass out you know, condoms and put the girls on birth control pills, and, and then everything will be happy. Well, no, you'll just make a bigger train wreck. And so, you know, the first thing to understand then is, is that when we try to make ourselves friends of God, by default, we make ourselves enemies with the world. And then what has had, what is, you know, the enemies with the world look like over the centuries? Well, first of all, let's look at our old buddy Moses. You know, in, in the books of Exodus and Numbers, that's when Moses is getting the people out of the promised land. And most of us, I think, pretty much know that the, it took the people 40 years. You know, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before they got to the promised land. And, but that was not God's original plan. You know, plan A was God was going to get the people out of, out of Egypt. He was going to lead them across the desert, lead them, you know, through the, through the Red Sea, um, lead them out of Egypt up to, you know, what, what we now call the Holy Land. And um, there, God himself 
would wipe out the pagans that were inhabiting the Holy Land at the time and then settle his people there. And all they would have to do is just sit back and let God do the work. And as a result of that then, you know, the whole trick, the whole project was supposed to take maybe four to six weeks. That was it. But as a result of the people constantly complaining against God and Moses, and, you know, of course, the big one in Exodus chapter 32, the, um, the, the golden calf, that's, that's the big one. As a result of that, then, you know, God says, well, these people just aren't ready for this relationship that I want to have with them yet. And so they will wander in the desert for 40 years. And while the, while the crybabies all die off, the young people that know, who really know nothing but life in the desert, it'll toughen them up. And then they'll be ready to, um, to lead the life that I want them to live. And so as they're going, you know, from place to place, and this actually, this story from Numbers 11 is maybe just five or six weeks after the Israelites had left Egypt. And this is after they have complained to God and to Moses all these times, oh, there's not enough food to eat. Oh, there's no water to drink. Oh, thank you, Moses, for bringing us out in the desert to let us die. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? Why did you bring us out into the desert? We remember in Egypt the food that we used to eat, the cucumbers, the leeks, the melons, the fish, the onions, but now there's nothing but this manna to look at and so on. You can read about all this in Exodus and Numbers. And so then they finally get to the, to the Jordan River and they're ready to cross over into the Promised Land with God as their leader. Moses sends a couple of guys across the river to check it out to see if it really is the land flowing in milk and honey like God said that it was. They come back and with a, with a, with a report and say, yep, it's a, it's a fruitful land, okay, but the people are very well in, you know, entrenched there and they're, they're big. They're big, tall people. They're monsters. And um, not that they're literally monsters, but they're giants. And, um, and there's no way we can take them. Caleb, the one guy who's, who's faithful, says, no, we can't. You know, God's here with us. God's on our side. You know, we can take them. And, um, but everybody else, you know, cries and moans. And so here's what they say. When Moses heard the people, family after family, crying at the entrance of their tents, so that the Lord became very angry and was grieved. And Moses said, Why do you treat your servants so badly? Moses asked the Lord. Why are you so displeased with me that you burdened me with all this people? Was it I who conceived all this people? Or was it I who gave them birth, that you should tell me to carry them at my breast like a nurse carrying an infant to a land that you have promised under oath to their fathers? Where can I get meat to give all this people? For they are crying to me, give us meat for our food. I cannot carry this people by myself, for they are too heavy for me. If this is the way you will deal with me, then please do me the favor of killing me at once, so that I no longer need face my distress. That's Moses. That's the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, and he's reached the end of his rope. He's telling God, I cannot carry this people myself. They are too heavy for me. If this is the way you will deal with me, please do me the favor of killing me at once so I need no longer face my distress. Now, Moses, you can tell he's, he's had a crisis or he's in the middle of a crisis of faith here. You know, the people are belly aching and moaning and, and so on. And, um, and so then, you know, as a result of this, that's when God says, okay, Turn around, go back to the desert, wander around for 40 years till all the crybabies die off, and we'll try this again in another generation or so. But look at poor old Moses. You know, if this is the way you're going to deal with me, do me the favor of killing me at once. Or you look at old Elijah. Now, remember in the, in the Old Testament, there's no book of the prophet Elijah, like there's the book of the prophet Jeremiah or the prophet Ezekiel or the prophet Isaiah. But Elijah appears as a prominent figure in the first and second books of Kings. 
And Elijah, this is after he's taken on Jezebel and he's taken on her false prophets. He's the only guy faithful to God um, among all the Israelites. Most all the other Israelites have gone over to foreign gods. And it says, Elijah went in a day's journey into the desert. This is 1 Kings 19, 4 to 5. Elijah went a day's journey into the desert until he came to a broom tree and sat under it. And he prayed for death, saying, This is enough, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. In other words, what has poor old Elijah figured out? Well, you know, really no kind of really no matter what happens, generation to generation, the problems are all kind of about the same. And no matter what he does, no matter where he goes, the problems are going to be the same for him as they were for those that came before him. And they'll probably be the problem, same problems that will become after him, which is exactly why we keep reading these ancient scriptures, because nothing much has changed. And so you can see there's poor old Elijah, you know, a crisis of faith, you know, Tell you what, God, this is enough. Take my life. I've had enough. I can't do any more. Or you look at poor old Jeremiah. Now, remember, Jeremiah, he was the one who had told God that he was too young. God comes up to Jeremiah and says, you need to go over and tell these Israelites to straighten out. And Jeremiah's excuse is, no, Lord, I'm too young. I I can't do this. Well, he goes off. He becomes God's prophet for him. And remember, prophets, for the most part, are basically teachers. You know, prophets will look at the situation at hand, they'll kind of look at the world, they'll look at the, the set of conditions that, the, that they're in the middle of, and they say, okay, now, based on what God has told us that he will do in these circumstances, and based on what God has done in the past, it's reasonable to assume that God will do this. Now, they don't, prophets never say, therefore, as of, you know, on March 17th, you know, whatever, you know, 2069 or whatever, such and such a thing is going to happen. That's when you cross the line from being a prophet to being a kook, all right? And prophets don't do that. Prophets just say, this is what you can expect. It's not unlike, you know, a a frustrated teacher or a frustrated parent trying to tell a teenager, you know, if you drop out of school, this is what you can expect. There will be fewer job opportunities. You won't make as much money. You know, just not being an educated person, you will not have as fulfilled of a life. That's a prophetic statement. You know, now again, if if a teacher or a parent tries to tell the kid, you know, if you drop out of school on November 9th, you know, whatever year, such and such a thing's going to happen, well, then that's just being kooky. But, but again, prophets look at the set of conditions that they're faced with and then apply you know, God's wisdom and laws to that and say this this would be the expected outcome. And so this is what Jeremiah does. He's going over and he's telling the people, this is what you can expect. And as a result of that, he gets all kinds of pushback from the people. And as a result of that pushback and, you know, Jeremiah kind of finding himself alone and, um, you know, trying to be God's mouthpiece, he cries out to God and he says, oh, Lord, you have duped me and I was duped. You have overpowered me and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I must cry and I must shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more of his name, then within me there is something like fire shut up, burning in my bones. I am weary from withholding it in and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is all around, denounce, let us all denounce him. All my close friends are watching me for me to stumble. Perhaps he can be enticed and we can prevail against him and take our revenge upon him. 
But the Lord is with me like a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and they will not prevail. They will be greatly shamed for they will not succeed. Their eternal honor will never be forgotten. So you can see poor old Jeremiah there. You know, you duped me, O Lord. You, you know, deceived me into coming into this, into this prophetic role. And what do I get? You know, he goes, every time I have to go out, you know, I have to, I, you know, my message that I have to tell people is violence and destruction. And people don't want to hear that. You know, the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all the day long. And then so Jeremiah says, all right, I'll just not mention him or speak of his name anymore. But then within me, there's something like fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary holding it in and I cannot. And so you can see there's the paradox of the prophet. On the one hand, you know, he, he doesn't want to talk about his prophetic message anymore because, you know, he's making himself a friend of God. And in so doing, making himself an enemy of the world. And the world is pretty brutal with the way that it deals with its enemies. Again, Jesus on the cross. So again, you can see old Jeremiah there, you know, having a pretty, pretty tough go at it. Now, um, another, another one, and this is, um, it's, it's kind of an endearing story, but it's, it's kind of comical in a way too, I suppose, is good old St. Teresa of Avila. St. Teresa, one of the things that she was doing, you know, during the, the 16th century when she was alive, people talk about the so-called Protestant Reformation, which I call the shipwreck of Christianity, because that's all it really did was just wreck Christianity. But there was, there was this thing called the Catholic Counter-Reformation, which was the true Reformation. This is a thing that really reformed Christianity, reformed you know, the church and got things back on track. And Teresa of Avila is one of the great counter-reformers. And one of the things she was doing, she was from Spain. She was going through Spain and establishing convents of, of, of women that would really be faithful to the gospel. And so as, as she's going along, she was going on the road with some companions and they were trying to, again, going from point A to point B to establish another convent. And um, here's how the journey went. This is a direct quote from St. Teresa. She says, we had run many dangers and no part of the road were the risk greater than a few kilometers from Burgos, a place called Los Pontes. The rivers were so high and the water in places covered everything. Neither road nor the smallest footpath could be seen, only water everywhere and two abysses on each side. It seemed foolhardiness to advance, especially in a carriage, for if one strayed ever so little off the road, which was then invisible, one might have perished. St. Teresa is silent on her share of the adventure, but her companions relate that seeing their alarm, she turned to them and encouraged them, saying, As we are engaged in doing God's work, how could we die for a better cause? Then she led the way on foot. The current was so strong that she lost her footing and was on the point of being carried away when our Lord sustained her. And she exclaimed, Oh, my Lord! And with her usual loving familiarity, when will you cease scattering obstacles in our path? Do not complain, daughter, the divine master answered, for it is ever thus that I treat my friends. Ah, Lord, is it on that account that you have so few of them, was her reply. So here you got poor old Teresa of Avila, you know, trying to go and establish a convent, trying to do God's work. And, you know, it must have been the rainy season. The rivers are all flooded out and everything. And she's about to get carried away by a roaring river. And God himself, you know, kind of reaches down and pulls her back and saves her from falling into the river. And then, you know, she says, Lord, you know, when are you going to put, quit putting all these obstacles in my path? And then God says, do not complain, daughter, for it is ever thus that I treat my friends. And St. Teresa says, ah, Lord, it is on that account that you have so few. In other words, so few friends. 
Now, the thing of it is, you know, whenever, you know, Jesus says, you know, it is this that I treat my friends, it doesn't mean that Jesus is being intentionally cruel. But again, what he's saying is it's just a, a, a reaffirmation of what we hear from St. James. If we make ourselves friends of God, we will find ourselves enemies with the world. Or, you know, Jesus himself said that, you know, I have come not for unity, but for division. From now on, a house of five will be divided three against two and two against three, mother against daughter, father against son. You know, everybody's heard that, that piece of scripture. So again, Jesus isn't saying, I'm just coming to sow division because I think it's fun. It's, a, it's just a, a, a statement of fact that, you know, if, if anybody that tries to do the will of God will find themselves at odds with the world, beginning in our own homes and beginning in our own families. It's just kind of the way it is. So again, the, for the first part of the program here, we've been talking about what happens, you know, when people are at the end of the rope. And we saw, you know, a number of people. We saw Moses and Jeremiah and, um, and, and Elijah and, you know, kind of what happens when they're into the rope and um, how people other than us you have all faced crises of faith at one point or another and how they dealt with it. In the next part of the program, we're going to talk about how, you know, the Christian movement, especially in the, the presence of Jesus, helps us through this. So, again, um, you're listening to the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Fine Family of Divine Mercy Catholic Radio Stations, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 101.7 KJDM Lindsburg Salina, and the station that started it all, 88.1 KVDM Hayes. And so everybody stay right there. Um, as I always say, tune us in to, to the Catholic radio station and bust off the knob of your radio because we're all you need to listen to. So sit tight and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Hey gang, we are back. I am Father Fred Gatchett. I am the rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina, Kansas. And I also teach religion part-time at Sacred Heart High um, to sophomores, Old and New Testament, kind of the high point of my day. And um, you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 101.7 KGDM Blindsburg Salina, and our flagship station where it all started, 88.1 KVDM Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And again, I've um, entitled this particular installment of Double-Edged Sword, When You're at the End of Your Rope. And that is to say that's a, a colorful way of describing someone that's having a crisis of faith. Someone that something has happened to them in life and it looks like there's just no place to go. Um, we've hit the end and, and hit a brick wall. There's no place to, no, no escape, no way out of it. And, um, you know, what do we do about that? And that um, what, I'm, what I'm prepared to argue is that back in the days when there was no Christianity, people would have a very hard time answering that question. And in our own day and age, when, when people have rejected Christianity, people have a very hard time answering that question. And that's why I think, you know, we see all these calls for, for example, you know, we want to legalize marijuana and legalize, you know, drugs and everything because people think, well, you know, when, whenever life, you know, gives me stuff that I can't handle, I just need to go alter my mind somehow with some kind of a chemical and that's how I'm going to get through it. 
or you know if if you know whenever life gets tough just give me some kind of sensual pleasure and that's how i'm going to get through it you know let me get my credit card out and go shopping and i'll feel better or let me you know link up or hook up with someone for some kind of illicit sex and i'll feel better or whatever and what we've seen by looking some of this at some of the stories from the old testament was you know various people like moses and elijah and jeremiah um, these are great people and they were at the end of their rope too they saw no light at the end of the tunnel you know they were they had reached points by trying to be friends of god they had become enemies with the world and as a result of that you know they they just kind of thought that well there was there was no hope and there was no reason to pick up and keep going but they did they did pick up and keep going and the reason why was because you know they knew that they were in in the service of something greater they were in service of something greater than themselves um, trying to serve god and trying to do what he wanted them to do and um ultimately then like we said in the first part of the program as christians our ultimate you know model of behavior our ultimate paradigm for this is Jesus on the cross. You know, when, when, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and breathing his last, um, there wasn't a whole lot of hope and there wasn't a whole lot of light at the end of the tunnel. But nonetheless, though, Jesus knew he was doing his father's will. And that's why he submitted to the, you know, the sham trial before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate and his buddies running out on him and being betrayed by one of his own and, and you know, the, the cruel and inhumane treatment that he received because at the end, you know, there was the resurrection. And um, we as Christians kind of do the same thing. The two examples that I have from the writings of St. Paul, they both come from 2 Corinthians. And again, you know, here's good old St. Paul. And um, here, you know, here's a guy that's given kind of the, the Christian reason for doing what he's doing. And so in 2 Corinthians, he kind of lays his cards on the table and he's explaining and he, he's um, talking about some of the difficulties that he's faced as, you know, being an apostle, as, you know, being a friend of God and an enemy of the world. And so here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 to 10, what does he say? He says, But as servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way through great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for, for the right hand and for the left, in honor and dishonor, in ill repute and good repute. We are treated as impostors, yet are true, as unknown, yet are well known, as dying and see we are alive, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. As always, St. Paul says an awful, awful lot with just a few words. Again, we stop and think about how our little world would get turned upside down if, you know, if, if, all, if certain powers have their way and um, all of a sudden it becomes hate speech, um, which, again, I think they might, they might already be there. I just haven't, they're not putting people in jail for it yet. But, like, if I get on double-edged sword, if I get on these radio waves and I say, yeah, there is no way that two people of the same sex can have what, was, what would be called a marriage. You know, they can have an illicit sexual union of some kind. They can engage in sodomy or whatever else. But you can call it what you want, but whoever it is ain't marriage. And, you know, what happens then when the FCC comes over and says, okay, well, for broadcasting hate like that, we're revoking your license. 
okay? Or, you know, they, they come and take me and put me in jail for hate speech. And they charge me with a hate crime and put me in jail for hate speech. Well, that's what happened to Paul. He was imprisoned. You know, he was beaten for it. I mean, you think about the sleepless nights. Think about the, the times we've lost night's sleep because we've stood up for what is right, you know, or, or it bothers us that something is wrong. You know, when we find ourselves friends of God and enemies with the world, then it bothers us when we see people that we love doing destructive things and we lose night's sleep, you know, and hunger. Well, hunger maybe because there's no food, but hunger just because I don't feel like eating because I'm sick to my stomach because of what I see going or going on around me. But then what does St. Paul say? Because of purity, by staying true to things, knowledge of what's right, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love. You know, these are the, these things are the, the, the power of God. And again, why would St. Paul do this stuff? Why would Paul put up with all this stuff, except that he knows that because he's serving Christ, he's serving something greater and more powerful and more noble than himself. And so when you, when you look at the... Um, at, at the results of all this. He says, we are treated as impostors, yet we are true, as unknown, yet we are well known, as dying and see we are alive, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I mean, I think that one right there kind of sums up the life of the Christian in, in the contemporary world in which we find ourselves. We are sorrowful. We are sorrowful at the millions of babies that are snuffed out with abortion and how the media covers up. You know, the, you talk about the big cover up. You know, there was just there's a story not too long ago that came out just for a little bit. And it was just and it was it was suppressed about as fast as it came out about how once again, um, the abortion clinics are selling baby parts. What they really covet, what they really want are the late or the latest term abortions possible because they can get very well developed organs out of these poor little children. And, um, and yet we see that and we're sorrowful. And so, for example, an example of people that are sorrowful, you're always rejoicing. Look at the various people that march on Washington, okay? If you got some climate change group that marks on Washington, they are sorrowful and they are angry. Or when you look at the, at the you know, whoever, you know, Black Lives Matter or all these various Marxist groups, these people are angry and they're never happy. There's nothing, never, nothing's ever going to make them happy. And yet, when you look at the, look at the pro-life groups, look, look at the people that, you know, that go to Washington every year for the March for Life, they are sorrowful. They are there for a very sorrowful reason, yet they are joyful people. And one of the ways you can tell, and the, the, the Park Service always marvels at this, is that whenever you have these various, you know, wacko Marxist communist groups that go mark on, march on Washington, they leave a mess behind. You know, they leave a physical mess. There's garbage and trash everywhere. After the March for Life, there's not that much to clean up, okay? Because, you know, the people that are sorrowful, but they're always rejoicing, all right? Um, you know, it says, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. Um, that's a very Franciscan notion. I bet old St. Francis of Assisi got that out of there. Um, there's a great line from St. Francis where he says, I once asked God for everything that I could enjoy life. Instead, God gave me life that I could enjoy everything. And okay, that, that's a very Franciscan thing. And so beginning with St. Paul. And so again, St. Paul would go through life um, not having much, 
but whatever he did have, he was very much able to appreciate and able to enjoy it. You know, that if, if he was to be invited into someone's home and someone gave him a meal, he would really enjoy that meal. And um, or if someone gave him a bed, he would really enjoy sleeping in the bed, you know, rather than sleeping on the ground or something like that. And so, you know, he has nothing yet possesses and enjoys everything. All right. And so, again, you can see there, this is what happens uh, with a guy who's at the end of his rope. Great endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, you know. But what does he do? He, you know, he keeps going. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, here's where St. Paul was um, comparing himself to, you know, other people that were, you know, kind of going out and announcing the gospel, but they really didn't have their heart into it as much as he did. And so... He says, are they ministers of Christ? And then in parentheses, he says, he goes, I'm speaking like a madman. But he says, I am still more with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, far worse beatings, numerous brushes with death. Five times at the hands of the Jews, I received 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. You can read about the shipwrecks in the Acts of the Apostles. I passed a day and a night on the deep. In other words, the, the ship sank, and he was holding onto a chunk of wood out in the middle of the ocean waiting to get rescued. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own race, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, in toil, hardship, through many sleepless nights, through hunger and thirst, through frequent fastings, through cold and exposure, and apart from these things, there is daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches." And so Paul has these daily struggles that he has, you know, just to, you know, keep alive and keep warm and well-fed. And apart from that, he's thinking about all these Christian communities that he's that he started, and he's worried about them and kind of how they're doing. I think that, you know, this really kind of helps us to identify with St. Paul, because think about all of us and the things that we daily worry about. You know, we're, we have anxiety about our families. How are our kids turning out? You know, whenever, you know, young people head off to college or, you know, a young couple gets married and the, you know, the, about the one hand, you know, the parents are very proud to see their child go on for more education or they're, you know, they're proud to see their son or daughter get married and everything. But then at the same time, there's the anxiety, you know, well, how are they going to do? Is, is college going to ruin my kid's mind the way it ruins so many other kids' minds these days? Is my child, if, you know, they've just gotten married, are they going to have a successful and a lifelong and a, and a blessed and life-giving marriage? Or is something going to happen and it's going to fail? You know, these are things that, that people, you know, rightly obsess about. You know, they worry about and, you know, we bring these things to prayer and hopefully try to find some, some peace and consolation. But nonetheless... You know, again, when we look back at the Old Testament and we look how, you know, people like Moses and Jeremiah and Elijah, you know, they, they, they made themselves friends with God. And as a result of that, were enemies with the world. And because they were enemies with the world, the world came after them with a, like a pack of rabid dogs with a vengeance, you know. And um, St. Paul the same way. Of course, again, our ultimate paradigm is Jesus. You know, Jesus not just being friends with God, but being God himself comes into the world that's in rebellion against him and the world can't stand him. And so the world tries to kill him. And, um, but nonetheless, Jesus has the last word with his resurrection. And I think that really, you know, guys like Moses and Elijah and Ezekiel and then Jeremiah, they wouldn't have seen that because they think they might have had a, a bit of an inkling as what the resurrection was about back then. But they would have also known there's no way to attain it because, you know, the Messiah had not yet come. 
And so they, their, their consolation was, well, I will do the will of God while I'm here on earth because it is the will of God. For us, you know, we do the will of God while, while here on earth because it is ultimately the way to, you know, to heaven and to eternal salvation. And so when we see, you know, St. Paul giving these laundry lists of all the, the, the terrible things that he suffered for the sake of the gospel, hopefully it gives us that much motivation to say, well, I haven't been beaten. I haven't been caught up in a riot. I haven't been imprisoned. I haven't been shipwrecked. I haven't been left out floating in the middle of the, of the Mediterranean Sea waiting to be rescued. You know, I haven't gone through these kind of difficulties for being a friend of God. But nonetheless, if we are friends of God, we do face these difficulties. Now, there's a little extra facet to this that I think that we who listen to Catholic radio, who are also going to be you know, the people that are going to show up at church on Sunday and stuff like that, this is a thing that's the, the, the really terrible trap that we have to be careful of. And that is this. It's one thing to say that I'm a friend of God, which makes me an enemy of the world. That much is pretty much, that's a, that's a foregone conclusion. But I think what happens a lot of times to church-going folks and to people who listen to, to Catholic radio and to people who make Catholic radio programs like myself, I think our big, our big problem, our big temptation or our big um, trap can be, well, I'll try to be friends with God and friends with the world both. I'll do what I can to fulfill God's will and I'll play by the world's games, by, I'll play the, by the, the game by the world's rules to a certain point so that, you know, I can be, be kind of friends with both. And the result of that, folks, is we end up being enemies of both. Because if we try to be friends with the world, as James tells us, we're enemies with God. But if we, and if we, and if we try being friends of God, then we're enemies with the world. And in so doing, then we find ourselves enemies of both. And that's kind of a difficult thing. Um, I can give you an example where that gets played out, and it's really kind of tragic. Um, I'm hearing more and more of this in our day and age. Um, by young people, I mean, teenagers, all the way up to parents and grandparents when they say, well, father, my brother, my sister, my son, my daughter, my grandson, my granddaughter, they're going to go, they're having a marriage ceremony in such and such a town, and they're marrying their same-sex partner. Do I have to go to the wedding? And there is a perfect example of what's going to happen, is if someone says, well, okay, I'm going to try, you know, by, by standing up for what's right, and because I always ask them, if you go to the wedding, why do people ask people to come to their weddings? Well, to show support. Exactly right. Do you support this union? No, I do not. Then why do you want to go? Well, the reason why you want to go is because of emotional blackmail. If you don't come to my wedding, it's because you don't love me and you're a homophobe and you're a hater. And, you know, they have, you know, the, the, the gay movement has done a masterful job of, of coming up with, um, uh, again, of, bla of, of emotional black. And so what happens then is going into this whole thing. I was just having this conversation not too long ago with a high school kid. Um, his sister is going to marry her, her girlfriend or whatever. And he says, you know, do I have to go to the wedding? And I said, well, I just asked him the same question. Why do you go to weddings? To show support. Do you support this? No, I don't. And um, I said, but let me guess. Your mother has told you, but she's your sister. He said, that's exactly right. Because that's what mothers do. They want to protect their, their children. And they, want to, they want to keep the nest together, which is a, a holy and noble thing. But it can also be, um, you know, perverted. It can be, you know, twisted around into something that's unrecognizable. And so what ends up happening is you start off, and before you go into this whole thing, what do we have? 
There's the relationship with the person that's now in question, and there's our own personal integrity, you know, our, our self-respect, our morals, and things like that. Now, if I say, okay, I'm going to forsake my integrity and my self-respect and my morals to go to this so-called wedding so that I can be friends with the world, so I can be friends with the way the world says to go, well, then what do I end up doing but making myself an enemy of God? Or if I say, well, you know, what, what, can I do it both ways? Can't I still, you know, claim to be a believer and still go to this thing? Well, here's what's going to happen. Is if a person says, sorry, sis, I'm not coming. You know, maybe you, maybe after the wedding, or if the, the, the wedding, it's not even a wedding, after this farce ceremony, um, you send her a, a little card and say, you know, I wish you well in your life. Um, you know, love you always. You know, your brother, Bob, whatever the case might be. Well, you know, so, so someone says, but I'm not going to go to the, I'm not going to go to this ceremony. Well, then what have you done? You have preserved your morals. You have preserved your self-respect. You have preserved your integrity. Now, the relationship with this person might be strained in the short term, or it might be lost altogether. But at least you kept your self-respect, your morals, and your integrity. On the other hand, if you say, well, I'm going to go along to get along. I don't believe in this, but I'm going to go just to you know, make sure that there's peace in the family and so on. Well, then what's going to happen is then you sacrifice your self-respect, your morals, and your integrity, and you're going to find that the relationship with this person isn't really going to isn't going to come isn't going to amount to much either, and so you end up losing them both. And that's what I mean by doing by by trying to be friends with God and the world. We make ourselves enemies of God and of the world because when we try to be friends with God and the world, we lose both. All right. And so um, you know we we whenever Saint James tells us that he's just making a statement of fact. When Jesus says that if you follow me, if you're a disciple of mine, then a family of five will be divided two against three and three against two. Mother against son, father against son, father against daughter, mother against daughter. You know, Jesus isn't saying that I'm coming just to make people pick a fight just for fun. He's saying this is the way it is. And I think we have to accept that. So again, when we find ourselves at the end of our rope, as I'm calling this installment a double-edged sword, what do we do when we find ourselves at the end of our rope? Well, we look at the examples of the greats that have gone before us. You look at poor old Moses. Lord, if this is the way you're going to treat me, kill me now and get it over with. You know, Elijah saying, Lord, if this is the way it is, you know, just take my life. And, you know, I've had enough. I can't do anymore. Or poor old Jeremiah, you know, you dupe me, oh Lord, and I allow myself to be duped. You know, I, you know, I don't want to talk about you anymore, but I can't. You know, it, it's this terrible paradox. The more I want to keep my mouth shut, it's like fire burning in my bones, you know, because I have to speak up for what is right and what is true and what is good. You know, again, if we find ourselves in those situations, we're in pretty good company because we're trying to remain friends of God. We find ourselves enemies with the world. And like St. Paul, like St. Teresa of Avila, you know, like Jeremiah, like Moses, like Elijah, we're going to find ourselves in those situations where it looks like all hope is lost and, and you know, that there's no light at the end of the tunnel or backs up against the wall, whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use. But the example of Jesus shows us, though, that in the end, what is there? There is the resurrection. For those who stand up for what is right and for what is good, in the end, you know, we will be vindicated because that's exactly what the whole story of the crucifixion and death and resurrection of our Lord is all about and what it's meant to tell us. 
So again, hopefully that helps a few folks out. If you find yourself, you know, again, um, with your back against the wall because you stood up for what is right, you find yourself, you know, being persecuted by family members because you stood up for what is right and good and true. Um, this is the nature of the beast. It's always been this way. It will always be this way. And our consolation is knowing that we did what was right and that in the end we will be rewarded for such fidelity by God himself. So again, um, this is Father Fred Gatchett. I am the, the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina, the Rector at Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, and I'm also a sophomore religion teacher at Sacred Heart High School, and you've been tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the fine family of Catholic radio stations, of Divine Mercy radio stations, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 101.7 KJDM Lindsberg Salina, and our flagship station that started it all, 88.1 KVDM Hayes. At this point, always like to remind folks to um, come over to our website at dvmercy.com. That's V as in Victor, dvmercy.com, and see what all's going on. There are a number of uh, various services the website provides, I'm including um, calendars of events for various things in the various communities that are served by Catholic Radio. Also, we have um, there. There are archived installments of the Double-Edged Sword program. You can go back and listen to um, previous programs that maybe you missed, or maybe there was a biblical citation there that you missed. And you want to go back and find out what it is and open up your Bible and read it for yourself. Um, we have any number of presenters. You know, all it's always priests that, that are that are presenting on Double-Edged Sword, and um, so you can always go back and listen to what, what one of the other Padres had to say. And we also have the One Body program, um, which again is another locally produced program. This is one of the things with um, with our Catholic radio stations here, with um, Divine Mercy Radio, and we actually have two in-house locally produced programs, um, which is kind of rare, and so we're very blessed in that regard. And so um, also when you look on the website, there is also the donate button. Um, we do depend on donations from listeners to keep the Catholic radio waves going. And so, um, you know, please um, th- keep, give, give us a float a few shekels our way once in a while so we can keep the radio station on and keep bringing you these programs. You can also feel free to call the station at 785-621-4110. Um, if you need to, if you have any questions about our programming, or if you have an idea for a future installment of Double-Edged Sword, um, feel free to call us up and, and leave a message, and we'll see if we can do some homework for you and put it on the air. So again, thank you for tuning in to the Double-Edged Sword program here on Divine Mercy Radio, Catholic Radio, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 101.7 KJDM Lindsberg Salina, and 88.1 KVDM Hayes. On the Double-Edged Sword program, we are coming to the heart of a deceptive culture, and we thank you for tuning in. Goodbye, and God bless.